Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. I am Sakar Kauli, and today I have the pleasure of having Josh Eppingen uh, from DXE Property Group. And Josh is based out of Long Island, New York. Their group has done multiple syndications. Uh, their portfolio size right now is just about 30 million. And he, along with his partners, bring in a rich, varied experience from various different markets. So with that, uh, Josh, welcome to the show. Uh, I appreciate your time today. Uh, do you want to give us a brief uh, background on uh, you know, how you got started, where you are uh, with your company, Josh? Sure, sure. So firstly, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I appreciate the invite. Um, yeah, so my, my ba- so like you said, DXE Properties is my company. I'm the co-founder of it um, with one partner. Um, I'll, I'll talk to my background mostly. Um, sure. My background much very much on the entrepreneurial side, whereas his is much more on the institutional side. Um, so we brought that together and we've been sort of actively scaling since then together. Awesome. Awesome. But I started back in, my first project was back in 2012. Um, I was, how old was I? I was probably 25 at the time. And <laughs> it was a 20 unit multifamily project in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, it was purchased for $175,000. Awesome. That <laughs> uh, pretty tough area. Um, just in general, its location. Um, it was occupied by four tenants out of the 20, just a complete disaster. It needed $200,000 worth of work, uh, uh, just a, a scary deal to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that, you know, we, we came into it. I, I had a confidence in my team out there and gradually with some headaches and hair loss, we were able to turn the property around, stabilize it and ended up selling it a couple years later. Awesome, awesome. And if I may, uh, Josh, on that deal that you bought, uh, was there something like an off-market deal, on-market deal? What made you uh, think, or was it more the, the price appeal that hey, I'm getting 20 units for uh, such a deep discount? What was that? You know, more like the appeal around it. So it was, it was off-market. It was a short sale. Um, I, I was connected to a property manager out there that uh, we just connected well. Um, and, and I think we were similar stages in our individual businesses, just getting going. Um, it helped, but he sourced the project. Um, we ended up paying him a wholesaler type fee. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, more than anything, like every project, you know, you you definitely do make money on the buy and and we bought that one, right. Um, but that's been our focus really going forward is trying to avoid competing you know, with retail investors and finding a good story, off-market, compelling type project. 
Sure, sure. And I know, uh, Josh, you have market uh, experience uh, from different locations and stuff. So I guess we will definitely get into the show uh, in a little bit about it. Uh, regarding your 20 unit uh, first deal that you did, right? So uh, it sounds like it was a distress uh, sale. And what type of renovations you had to do? Like you, you said something about almost a couple of hundred uh, thousand uh, worth of renovations uh, into that asset. Could you maybe describe what sort of problems you had and how, like, what time frame it took to, uh, you know, sort of get everything going and increase the occupancy? Yep, um, I can, and it's been a while, so don't hold me to the numbers. We sold sure. it five years ago, but um, so. I mean, it, it, we needed new roofs. The parking lot needed to be completely redone. The balconies were deteriorating. Every unit needed, at a bare level, at a bare minimum, some level of renovation to make it livable. Even the occupant ones, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, and and be, between that, if you uh, five thousand dollars a unit in renovations, interior plus some of the the roof, parking lot, balconies. Um, <laughs> It adds up. It adds up. It adds up pretty quickly. So even across a small deal, I, I mean, it was a big Reno project for that for that size deal. Sure, sure. How how long did it take? Like nine months to a year? I'd say the physical side we were able to do a lot quicker because it was so vacant. Um, so we didn't have to worry about turnover or honoring leases or anything. Like that. Mm -hmm. In six months, we had the physical work completed. Mm -hmm. At, at least the vast majority of it completed. It. And we, we underwent a lease up, um, which was pretty successful. We definitely felt, you know, some, some turnover because we leased up very quickly. I think everyone was really excited and feeling the pressure to lease up. And then we definitely felt a wave of just delinquency and having to flush out some of the worst tenants and sure and retain the good ones basically right right and and it's an awesome feeling that you're renovating and new town leases are signing up and you almost get excited that hey this is this is working you know you're new tenants coming in it's an awesome feeling you know uh so uh, i know you sold the uh, building so how could you maybe share some numbers as to you know how you make out on that sure so we we were all into it for less than four hundred thousand dollars um and we ended up selling it for just over five. I think okay. it was five was the final number. Uh, you know, I, I, when I went into that project, especially with my, when, I, when I was younger, the thought process was long-term, let's hold this forever, cash flow, it, it'll be great. But the reality was we created a lot of value in a pretty short period of time. Um, it was one that would just be great to show end-to-end -end transactional success on. And frankly, it was in a pretty, a more challenging submarket and neighborhood where mm -hmm. really operating it consistently with that unit count was a challenge, frankly. Right, right, right. Well, it wasn't efficient at that point. And frankly, I mean, my experience has been, Josh, is that in these challenging neighborhoods, you know, it's very difficult to operate and, you know, achieve that scale because just the neighborhood, uh, you know, bad actors and things like that, they take over. And it's, it's just extremely difficult to, I mean, of course, if it's a hundred unit where you control a lot more scale, that's one thing. But if you're having, you know, under 30 units or something like that, it's, it's, it's very difficult to manage, have a staff and things like that. It just doesn't work out. No, I mean, it's such a difference. The, the on-site staff 
Um, I, I mean, we won't look at a property that's less than 70 units on the multifamily side mm -hmm. because that, that's what we see as the minimum to be able to employ a full-time office manager and a full-time maintenance person. Sure, I would agree. I would absolutely agree. So uh, then, Josh, like how, how it involved? Like uh, how was your second deal, third deal? I know you've done several deals after that. Uh, could you maybe share uh, how, how you progressed uh, through your uh, different uh, deals then? Sure, sure. Yeah, so we've done, um, it's actually about 12 projects total, um, which have varied from, I, I mean, multifamily is definitely the focus, um, but we have done a couple local, you know, New York Metro projects. Um, we've done retail and, and um, condo development as well on mm -hmm. a smaller scale. Um, but so next, looking back 2012, um, I, I next stepped up and stayed in the same market just leverage the same relationships there did a 44 unit project um and then a 62 unit one also in the same metro area mm -hmm. and um and then after that i i left cincinnati and and did a couple projects on in the southeast um where i still own a few deals uh in, in charleston in particular um but it's been gradual I, I i mean every project has been gradually growing i didn't jump from a $200,000 deal to a $7 million deal. It was a, a 200 of, you know, the, the, this 20 unit deal, then a 44 unit deal, 62, uh, 80, 96, and it have just been gradually stepping up at a, at a pace that is manageable. Right, right. No, and, and, that, and that's awesome. I think based on your comfort zone and the capital and things like that, I, I think it's, it's awesome to graduate slowly. Uh, speaking of these different markets then, uh, Josh, uh, I know you're based out of Long Island, so which we all know is pretty expensive. Um, and given your experience that you started, uh, let's say, in Cincinnati first, then you graduated uh, towards, let's say, uh, Charleston now in South Carolina. Uh, could you maybe share, uh, like, differences within these markets and what you think, like, uh, investors should look for uh, as they, you know, move around uh, different markets? Definitely, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I, maybe I'll, I'll first speak to the why behind me leaving Cincinnati. Sure. Going elsewhere, I, I did um, professionally. I, I began working at a as a software company project manager there. After a few years, I said I want to get into real estate. Uh, I and I, I actually slashed my salary quite a bit to be a analyst and an acquisitions guy for a multifamily real estate investment firm, predominantly focused in the southeast garden style properties. Um, so you know, ultimately that was probably the best experience I could have, could have possibly gotten from both a technical perspective and e even more so from a relationship perspective that I, I was really able to tap into a broker network that otherwise may not have given me real attention. Sure. Uh, you know, on, on the market side, I, I was brought out to Cincinnati because of that one relationship with the property manager. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I almost worked backwards into appreciating the market of Cincinnati. I, I didn't really know it well, but um, what I like about it was that it is pretty diverse. Um, there's nine Fortune 500 companies there that are in different sectors. You have like a Procter and Gamble and a and a Fifth Third Bank, and um, you you've just uh, Kroger. I think is also headquartered there. You just have a good diversity mm -hmm. of employment, um, and just good density. It's not the highest growth market necessarily when you compare to some of these Southeast markets or 
Southwest or Texas as an example. Sure. Mm -hmm. However, the cap rates tend to be higher and, and you're typically able to get a better yield and cash flow out of it as you hold the deal. Sure, sure. And how, how you this would describe like Charleston maybe is different uh, uh, like when you kind of studied the market? So Charleston is, one, it's, it's a, definitely a smaller market. So the Charleston MSEA is probably 800,000 people okay. versus a few million in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. uh, what I love about Charleston is that it has a lot of, it has like the landlocked nature of the New York metro area. So the growth is, could really only be in one direction. And it's sort of like a pizza pie. Mm -hmm. uh, Charleston historically was tourism and military. That, that's what the economy. Right. Uh, in the last 10 years or so, that's dramatically changed with Boeing um, has an enormous presence down there. Then you have Mercedes, Volvo, large manufacturers um, that have really invested into the area and have completely transformed it. Um, so, you know, that, that frankly is a lot of our focus. We just think that people are going to be leaving the Long Islands and headed down there, quality of life, affordability, all of those things. Sure, uh, sure. So we're willing to pay what could be perceived as a premium to be in some of those markets right now. I see. So uh, depending on your deal size uh, there, Josh, like, uh, could you maybe give a sampling of, uh, you know, maybe one of your Charleston deals as to, you know, how you found what was the price and, uh, you know, sort of a, a rent or value add uh, components that you did. Could you maybe uh, share some more information about them? Sure. Um, so just last year, 2018, about a year ago, um, we purchased a 80 unit property in, in a submarket of Charleston called Somerville. Mm -hmm. uh, this was an off market property also sourced from one of our property managers in the market. Um, and it was owned by the original developers family still that built it in the seventies, believe it or not. Wow. Um, is, you know, everyone loves that story. That you love those, uh, you know, long ownership with a bunch of equity on their back. Man, you always love. Yeah, it. so you just know it's a it's a good story. It's just a it was a challenging deal to do because the rents were extremely low. Average rents when we purchased it were five hundred dollars, and the purchase price was fifty thousand dollars a unit. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. so, you know, there there was this extreme you know, it didn't have any debt cover ratio or it, it, you were certainly not getting any type of agency debt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the, this was a bridge debt play. Um, we've owned it for a year. Average rents now are 750 and we're leasing units in the 850, 950 range. Right. Just so that our listeners understand the bridge debt would be, you know, like distressed deals that would not qualify under Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And, uh, you know, you, you're using that short term bridge to, bridge debt to, you know, like renovate the unit, raise your occupancy up so that you can qualify for the agency debt. Uh, so uh, going back to that deal there, Josh, how much, uh, like how much was your occupancy? Like, you know, what were the sort of the uh, plays going on? Like what, what was the situation there with that? So it, it's, there were, there were a number of unique scenarios with this one. Um, one thing I've never seen before across any of my own deals or working for a much larger company. So they were leasing units and having the person pay rent uh, based on the day they moved in. So they could be collecting money on the 7th of the month, on the 12th of the month, on the 22nd of the month. It was crazy. Wow. Uh, 
Talk about having a management nightmare. <laughs> so they, they were doing that. I don't know how they kept track of it. Mm-hmm. Everybody on a month-to-month lease, but they were very, very well-occupied. I, I mean, it, rents were so low. There was such a discount for the rest of the market that, it, you, you know, it, it was just constantly well-occupied as, as we understood it. Um, the financials were terrible. It, it was really just working off of tax returns because it was all handwritten by the owner's son. Sure, sure. You can, you can tell low rents with all type of cycle of, uh, you know, uh, rent collection strategies and you can just make up, you know, all the story that would go on. And so but let's put it this way. The property wasn't optimized uh, as it should be and it wasn't professionally managed, you know. Yeah, and, and I, I bring up that deal because I, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, r- right now prices are... You know, everyone talks about it. We're 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 closer to here than we are here in, in the. But I fully believe and have always been a believer that wherever you are in the cycle, there's always going to be a good story and a good opportunity where you could buy into some value. Um, it may take some some work, but that that those stories absolutely always exist. Right, right. Those stories are there, and I think what you touched upon is very important. And those stories coupled with some uh, deep value add, like whether it's, uh, you know, deferred maintenance and things like that, or just like complete neglect or unprofessional property management, those stories exist throughout the board. And uh, a lot of times, a lot of these assets, they really don't make out to like, let's say loop net of the world, or they don't, you know, hit like sort of the broker's list. It's, it's really, you know, off-market relationship building, which sounds like I think we've done a lot. Um, and once you know those, I think you just have to have that experience and muscle to say that, hey, we're gonna see this project through. Because you know, getting a bridge debt and going through that, uh, all those renovations, trying to get your occupancy up, is is it's a uh, you know it's a huge risk. Uh, just trying to you know get through, and uh, and I'm sure you must be very relieved that. Uh, you, you know, once you got your occupancy up, uh, did you qualify? Did you say that you, you went agency debt route as well? Have you reached that spot now? Uh, so not yet. We're we're locked into the loan for 18 months. So mm-hmm. we can finance until September. I see. I see. But I'm sure like once your occupancy is up, uh, you know, as soon as you'll... Uh, oh, yeah. We, we're there on... I mean, we're hitting... We hit our average rent that we were projecting six months from now. So we're... Sure. Um, it'll be a good refinance. Sure, sure. Awesome. Awesome. And um, I know, uh, Josh, that you are syndicating these deals. Uh, could you maybe uh, give us an insight into how you're structuring your syndications? Like how is your sort of uh, split in preferred returns involved and things like that? Sure, sure. So I've done a few different uh, structures over the years and past syndications. The box that we sort of fall in right now is a preferred return with some level of split and then hurdle thereafter. Um, so I'd say typically a five to 8% preferred return. Mm-hmm. And then we're either uh, 90, 10 or 80, 20 after that mm-hmm. and at a 12 or a 14, there's a hurdle to 70, 30 or 60, 40, basically that, that I gave you a range, but that's, sure where all of our structures are within right sure, now. Sure, sure. So it, it, I guess, you know, uh, I mean, I, we all, I think, understand that depending on every asset, you know, how the performance will look like, you, you have the sort of a general framework and obviously each deal would be slightly different based on, you know, how the numbers work out. 
Certainly. I, I think, um, you know, in this market, just it's competitive. I, I, I do think the, the pref is meaningful. Um, and I, I think investors appreciate it. And, uh, you know, and I plan to offer a pref moving forward. Um, you know, we, myself and partner are always investing in our projects. So we are earning on that side as well, but. Uh, sure. And, and yeah. it's, it's, I think it's very important, as you said, that you invest as a silent investor as well. You're not just, you know, on the general partnership side, which, you know, speaks to, you know, hey, you're willing to invest in your own deals. So you align with your investors and you can sort of speak to it that, hey, we we are with you in the same boat, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I've seen a lot of people just try starting, you know, it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's sexy to try to start this business, no money down and you can scale it forever. Sure, sure. I don't, at least I personally don't believe that's, the reality, I, I think it is meant as a, you know, get rich slow, gradual investing, you know, legacy building, wealth building. That, and absolutely, and I agree with you. And that's that's the whole model as to why, uh, you know, we uh, give our podcast the premium cash flow award is that you grow together, you do business ethically and with integrity you align with your other, uh, you know, passive investors and we grow together and, and word spreads out so quickly. That, uh, would you agree that, you know, Hey, one person will refer it to their, you know, aunt or other friends. And suddenly you have, you know, off of one investor, you probably have three or five investors who are coming together. And uh, would you agree to that, Josh? Yeah, I, you know, I definitely would. I think, um, this world, the, the syndication world has come become a little bit wild west ish in, in that you do, uh, you have everyone in the world syndicating deals or syndicating for syndication. Sure, sometimes it just seems too much. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I do think to the, to the passive investor, my, my advice would be just take your time and know ultimately who you're directly investing it with. I think sure. that's to me, the, the most important part because you know, no one's going to sit down and know what, what you know or what I know from a sure. former perspective or knowing the deal itself. Sure. But they get to know the person and know that they're investing in that. Absolutely, absolutely. If I may ask those related questions um, around, uh, you know, passive investors and, you know, syndications and things like that uh, there, Josh, when you go about uh, raising capital, what are some avenues you have pursued, whether it's attending meetups and things like that, and or if you're having those dinner table or coffee uh, conversations with your passive investors, what sort of uh, benefits you are sort of telling them? Uh, like, so basically kind of like going into more about how you're acquiring the passive investors and what benefits you sort of highlight them uh, using your deals. Sure. Um, so look, it's, it's gradual. It's very, very gradual. Um, we sponsor a number of networking events on, on the real estate side, uh, local RIAs. Um, we've hosted joint meetups with other industry professionals. Um, you know, obviously we're not talking about any deals at any of these events. We're really just trying to provide value, sure. um, you know, inform people on the space, talk to the merits of, in this case, apartment investing, sure. uh, you know, depreciation benefits, benefits of scale, you know, getting, be, owning a slice of a bigger pie versus, you know, a, a slice, 
whatever it may be. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, the residual nature of real, of this type of investing, um, that it, it can be, and just really more than anything, the diversification benefits. Um, I, I've done events and, and one of my biggest supporters is someone that's a financial advisor for a, a large brokerage. And oh, that's awesome. He loves everything about it. He, his company puts restrictions on what he can get involved in, but he, you know, he's the first to refer people over to me. And it's, it's interesting to see the amount of uh, just faith that he has in this sector overall. That, that is, that is so true. That is so true. And one of the things I also like uh, here in this, Josh, is that the business is so resilient. Uh, the multifamily or the apartment side of this is so resilient that, uh, in fact, there's a statistic out there uh, that, you know, during the crash, there was such low delinquency across multifamily sector. And it was so important to highlight that uh, what we actually did is on uh, on our website homepage, we have the entire banker's report where we kind of noted that, hey, in the multifamily sector, whether it was Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, CMBS, life insurance, all these different, uh, you know, classes that invest like literally billions of dollars, their delinquency rate was like 0 0.01. 5.03 so it was like if you compare the scale and the amount of investment compared to you know what the delinquency was it was really minuscule and that's that's and that's the fact on the ground is that we know many investors uh, i know personally during uh, actually the 09 and the 08 crash that they really suffered in the uh, in their house side of the single uh, family world versus a lot of investors who were in the multifamily they in fact grew because the contraction or the price fall was really uh, you know just more about fear and the markets it wasn't a fundamental crash in terms of you know the numbers of multifamily so a lot of uh, investors i'm sure you you would agree to this is that a lot of investors who bought properties during that uh, 2009 10 11 era boy i mean did they brought bought those properties at a deep discount i mean that 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 is really you know oh yeah those properties have been resold three three times since then absolutely absolutely and that, and and it speaks to the resiliency that i was uh, highlighting there josh is that you know that fall was really just about fear and stuff it wasn't about the fundamental you know vibrancy of the uh, multifamily market itself it was always it was always you know good as it uh, as it is it was just you know just the market forces that caused the prices to drop off uh, versus you know uh, we should compare contrast with single family also that in single family for example you know you you had like bad loans and you know all these securitization notes and things like that that literally went a precipice and took such a big fall. That was the real crash. But in multifamily, it was just fear-based, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I and that's, I think I, I agree with that generally. I think, um, you know, I, every, even multifamily is not without risk. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I tend to agree that, like, on the demographic side, you know, there's going to be, you would think there's going to be demand in multifamily for a very, very long time. It's just... You know, but whether it's need-based rental or lifestyle-based rental, there, there's endless statistics that just say lots of people at every level. Um, but I, it would not shock me if there is some sort of a event or series of events that do put pressure on real estate and particularly on the 
the debt side that that does trickle down and affect valuations in real estate it does you're absolutely right in fact we have commercial paper like you know those five year and seven year cycle that start to mature that's mm-hmm. probably going to happen soon and that's going to trickle down across uh, commercial, I mean, in general, whether it's retail side or the multifamily side, you, you're going to see that softening. So I, I absolutely agree with you there. So anyway, so good, good. It's been an awesome discussion there, Josh. Um, speaking of syndications uh, there, Josh, like how, uh, how do you go about, uh, you know, meeting different syndicators or do you raise capital from like private equity firms and things like that? Would you maybe uh, go into your strategies? Like if you were presented a large deal, uh, how would you approach that? So, it, and it's been a, a consistent path of just building relationships. I, I, uh, I, I drink a lot of coffee with a lot of people that I meet from some of these events that express interest. Um, you know, to your point, you mentioned it before that my best referral is someone that's invested previously that then offers it to another friend of theirs um, and says, Hey, I, I was in this and you should come along on the next one. Um, the, the fact, the truth is right now, when I pursue a project, I, I don't have a guarantee that we're going to have the equity lined up for it. Sure. Um, it's become somewhat of a, you know, let's see what our investor base is interested in or not interested in. We get it out there. And I mean, to this point, we've never fallen short on a capital raise. Um, but, you know, it, it's pretty much first come, first serve base. I keep looking to my left because I have my list of, uh, <laughs> on a whiteboard, my like. Your, your pass. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but you know, I, I wish I knew the answer. It's not a snap of the finger type of thing. Sure. Um, but you know, it, it's basically, we're not a huge company. It's, it's two of us as the founders that are ultimately driving this. Sure. Um, what we're doing, we're, we're chasing deals and while at that have a compelling story and at the same time, nurturing both existing investors and, um, creating relationships gradually with, potential new ones. I mean, my, my largest investor is someone I met six years ago um, that had never invested with me. And finally, after six years, had this project and invested over a million dollars. So, you know, it's truly the way we look at it is there's no meeting not worth taking. It's just what, what, it's just a slow gradual relationship. Exercise. Right, right. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. And I, I and I appreciate the bootstrapping. And I think sky's the limit for you, Josh. There. And uh, you know, I, I wish you uh, you know an awesome luck. Um, how? Please tell us, Josh. How uh, you know uh, viewers can find you uh, and how they can locate you uh, in terms of your website and contact information and everything. <laughs> Sure. Um, so uh, we have a website, dxeproperties.com. Um, please do sign up for a newsletter there. We try to just share monthly updates of the market or progress of DXE and our journey. Um, and then our contact information is on that website as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to having you back, uh, you know, as you progress and have more news. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, you know, networking with you in future as well. Me too. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.